This is Dan. Before we start the show today, I just want to say thank you so much to everybody who has supported this show on Patreon. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash roadwork. It's becoming a bigger part of how we want to support the show, and uh, more than 500 of you have shown up and, uh, and, and made a donation. There's a lot more of you out there, though, and both John and I need the support. So please consider a small donation or a large donation. It all helps. And as a reward for those of you who are supporting, go there and you will see the additional bonus material that came after we stopped recording today's show. And we're going to make a habit out of that. So if you want a little bit more of John and me doing road work, only Patreon supporters will hear that. So consider that little donation. It makes a big difference. Patreon.com slash roadwork. Hello. Hello, John Roderick. How are you today? Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? Pretty good. Good news. You know, I'm realizing I got a package in the mail um, that I was intending to open on the show, a package from a listener, and uh, I took it out of here in order to take it somewhere else, and then I forgot to bring it back here, so I don't have it. So anyway, too bad. That is too bad. Too bad, Andrew. Too bad, Dan, and all of our listeners. Was it from, was it something that was from Andrew? Don't know. Who knows? Just, I just invented, I just threw that name out there like, (laughs) maybe. I get it. Maybe it was from, who knows who it's from. Yeah. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. Won't be long. Won't be long. Won't be long before you're gone. There's something going on, on, on. So how's the, how's the music going? What's going on with the with the with the new album? Oh, let's not talk about that. Okay, sorry. Let's leave that completely alone. Okay. How are you? Do you have any other questions? <laughs> uh, Wee! Yeah, no, I feel a little giddy, Dan, because I went I went to the. <clears throat> I went to the uh, Asian grocery store this morning uh-huh. uh, with the idea that I wanted a humbow. And I got there. A humbow. A humbow. Humbow. I, I got there. I couldn't find them. You know, I knew they were there, but the 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 uh, grocery store here has become such a cornucopia of various foods from throughout Asia that it's it's very difficult anymore just to find a simple humbow. Now, I Googled Humbao, mm-hmm. and the first entry, which I would like to read to you, is uh, from Urban Dictionary. In fact, the first one, two, three are from Urban Dictionary. Mm-hmm. Humbao, the act of humming whilst simultaneously sucking on testicles, it's an ideal – well, I won't even go any further. Mm-hmm. That's, That's probably not what, not what you wanted. That's not what I wanted for breakfast. How do you spell it? Uh, well, there are a lot, because it's a, uh, uh, transliteration from Chinese or, or, um, let's see, I'm going to guess Chinese. Uh, it's like H-A-M-B-A-O or H-U-M-B-A-O. Humbao. 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 Okay. Now the first result for that is best humbao in town. Mm -hmm. So that's probably more like what we want. Yeah, it's like a doughy bun. Oh, I'm looking at this. Of chopped up barbecue pork. Okay, looks good. So this is what I wanted. 
<clears throat> I've had some amazing ones in over the years and I, I, I never crave one. I never get one, but I was driving into town and I was like, I want one of these things. So I went to the store. I did not go to like a restaurant, which is what I should have done. I went to the big, like the big, um, yeah, like, you know, Asian grocery store where they're selling like live carp and they have food from all over. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find it. So I bought a little, like a little sushi roll, except instead of, it was a, it looked like a sushi roll, but it was full of teriyaki beef. Okay. I'd never seen that before, but I liked it. And then I, I said to the woman behind the counter, do you have any humbon? She said, oh, I'll get you one. And she went in the back, came out, gave it to me. I brought it over here to the studio where I'm recording with you and I ate half of it and it was the most terrible thing. I had most terrible thing I've had in a long, long time. Ugh. Yeah. And uh, so now I'm, I'm a little bit giddy. I'm a little bit giddy because all my senses are really heightened, but they're heightened in, in like they, they, the, the senses got heightened in a process of being disgusted. By <laughs> no, not doesn't sound very good. Right. So that's a kind of heightening though. Right. I mean, if you had, if you had like a delicious food, or someone was giving you a wonderful uh, ham ham bow yeah. of the other sort. Uh-huh. You know, your senses would be heightened. Sure. And you'd be like, wow, I'm tingling. Like I'm receiving messages from <laughs> from outer space. But when you eat half of a shitty hum bow, mm-hmm. it heightens your senses in a different way. But they're still very heightened. You know, there's yeah. no, uh, no such thing as um, no such thing as bad press. I guess. I guess. Say. Yeah, that's what you're. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, Dan, let me ask you this. Do you keep a log, a backlog of viewer mail? I feel like answering some viewer mail. You want to do some viewer mail? Do you have like a, a little file of that? Yes, somewhere? yes, I do. It'll take me a moment to uh, to load it up. But uh, we, we do get a bunch of feedback. Yeah, well, I don't know if I care about feedback, but I do. I am interested in answering people's questions. I feel, I feel lately like I haven't been because I because I have abandoned social media for the most part. I'm, I don't put myself in a position to a- answer questions, <clears throat> and it's one of my favorite things to do: answering questions. All right. Well, I'm uh, I'm going through some here. We do have a bunch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how far back to go. Oh, it doesn't matter. They're all, I'm sure they're all perennials. They're all pretty good in here. Yep. Um, yeah. Wow. And some of these go way back. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll just start with this one. Okay. Hi. Hi. Many thanks to John for sharing his opinion on the left's response since the inauguration. Oh, you, you remember that episode. I'm of the same opinion that we should believe in our government system, which seems to be something everyone overlooks and or doesn't understand. I don't consider it white privilege, considering I'm a 28-year-old woman with immigrant parents who also feel the same. It's more to do with us living around Dallas and everyone pretty much being Republican to begin with. So while we consider ourselves Democrats, we don't look at the right in the exaggerated way that so many people in this country do. Love all the great shows. Jessica. Yeah, that's not so much a question as it is. It is a, a prompt, I think, for you, for you to respond. Yeah, it's reader comments, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been I've been thinking quite a bit about about how, um, let's see about ideology lately. Yeah, and 
you know, one of the one of the most difficult things about the current climate of the left wing is that the left has decided in its in its most current and radical incarnation that the way to produce safety, you know, the way to the way the the way that the left wants to support and encourage and protect its adherence is to eliminate um, criticism. You know, like you're not really allowed to criticize the left from within the left right now. Uh, and that is, that's being sort of put forth as a, um, like the, the, the uh, justification for it is that to do so, to criticize the left, to think hard about the left and its choices is to create an unsafe atmosphere. Right. That what we need right now more than anything is to recognize that people are at risk. People are under siege. We need to protect people. That is the that's our primary goal. And any amount of dissent threatens that. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, you know, I, I think it should be obvious that I think that that's patently untrue. Right. And that as soon as. As soon as you stop being able to hear criticism, as soon as you not, not just be able to hear, but as soon as you stop integrating criticism into your own process, you know, like self-criticism. And as, as soon as you, as soon as you make critics into apostates, then you are, then, you know, you're, you're headed to authoritarianism and the left is just as capable of authoritarianism as the right. And we, we always forget that, you know, we think that authoritarians are always people that get in that, that try to collect power to themselves just to enrich themselves. But in fact, a lot of authoritarianism starts with idealism. Some political movement decides that the, that the power and the money are concentrated in the hands of, of a corrupt elite and they, they try to, or I mean, and then they have a revolution and they drive that elite out and they replace the elite with themselves who have only the best intentions, who want to create equality and then power corrupts them. And then they become the, you know, of the authoritarian elite, but they, but they present themselves always as working on behalf of the people, always being a sort of a populist. I mean, that's a super common story. So right now the climate of the left is such that if you criticize the left, you're immediately like, um, you know, you're, you're not, I mean, you're shouted down, you're, you're declared an enemy of the people. It's almost worse than being uh, a right winger. Well, yeah, right. It's, we it's hate like you're, you're, you've, you've become a traitor. You've, you've turned on your own family in some way. Right. You're right. attacking from within. You're the, you're the parasite from within. It's the nar uh, narcissism of minor differences. So that is a terrible climate. And I, you know, and I, I think that it has, I think that it is inhibiting growth and it's inhibiting, I think a lot of people who are getting interested in politics, who are maybe new to it or who want to know more, who want to do something, but don't want to live in a climate of constant, like, assault uh, you know that nobody wants to live in a world where they're being screamed at all the time and i don't think anyone i don't think there are very many people who want to live in an environment where they're screaming at people all the time right 
And the way things are right now, if you have, if you are, you know, a, a progressive person, um, or, or honestly, if you're of any political stripe other than a, a radical on either side, either like a, like a, you know, a white supremacist on one side or a, you know, down in the streets, um, like, you know, young college socialists, um, you know, organizer and agitator. Uh, if you're at either, if you're not at either one of those polls, you feel like this weird, at least I feel very inhibited about making any kind of, or any kind of public participation because there's a, like in some ways instantly a litmus test. I mean, people are applying litmus tests to me all the time and I'm really on the record about where I stand on things, you know, but it's like, well, do you, I mean, do you think that the, do you think that the car is green? Do you think the dress is gold and white or, or whatever, blue and yellow or whatever it was? I don't even remember. And if you answer wrong, you're just like, you know, you're as bad as the, as the worst. And so I like, I'm, I'm trying to remind people that I come in contact with that, like, the idea of thought technology is very important to employ right now and to realize that every single one of these different ideologies, including ones that are very close to us, are just ideologies. They don't actually, they are not actually the truth of the matter, right? They are just any ideology, any political description of events is just an analogy. It's an attempt to describe. And so, you know, we're in a case right now, we're on college campuses and, and throughout the progressive left, intersectionality is the, is the, um, the political sort of ideology. It is, it is the descriptive analogy for power and wealth and, and, you know, and obviously now the word privilege is used as a, as a major component of, of describing intersectionality as a, as a, as a, as a filter or as a look, as an overlay of reality to say reality is not what it seems. It is actually uh, an historic and like wide reaching global and, and age old struggle for uh, control of resources struggle for access and there's a, there's an elite that controls it. And then there's a mass that, that deserves it. And they're pitted against one another in a, you know, in a, in a, in a struggle. And that is, you know, that's a, obviously like a, it's rooted in a Marxist understanding of history, but within the, within young people now, I sense like it's very, very difficult to, to question that narrative at all. Not, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about like to question it, like to say that none of this is true, but even to question like the, uh, certainly to question it, let alone to question some of the conclusions that are being drawn about what, what your responsibility is as a young person to work on behalf of other people. And, and so I just am trying to encourage people to remember that none of these things are, you know, that you cannot point to any political ideology, any description of history 
any description of conditions and say, this is true, right? You can't point and say, this is unequivocally true. And everything that is against this is false. You know, like it's, it just doesn't work that way. Reality is complicated. No, there is, you know, there's always a new theorist and a theory is just a theory. And there's a lot about Marxist theory that really resonates with us. And it does seem to be a very good descriptor of certain relationships. But you cannot say that it is a true descriptor. It's just an analogy, you know, it's just a, it's, it's really just a way of seeing. And I just want, I just want to encourage our listeners who maybe feel like um, a lot of stress right now about either getting in line or being an apostate or feeling like they're surrounded, uh, even surrounded by friends to just remember like all of this is just, you know, it's just people attempting to describe and sometimes people get it right and everybody rallies around an idea. And then uh, 25 years later, it's revealed that that is, that that was really a bad way of thinking about it, you know, like really a bad way of describing a thing. And then we switch gears and we think about it a different way. I'm trying to remind, I'm trying to remind myself of that all the time too, because it, because you get into postures where people are arguing from a position of what, what appears to be total confidence. You know, they're ready to, um, they're ready to go to war based on an idea that it feels like they're, they're, they, they know to be the truth of the matter. And, you just, you really get the feeling like, oh, wow, you haven't really thought about the idea that much. You haven't thought about the history of the idea. You haven't, you, you heard it, you liked it. It felt true. It made you feel energized. And you, and that was the end of your investigation. You didn't go back and see where the idea originated. You didn't want to, you do not definitely don't want to look at all the, all the facts that seem to contradict your idea. And that just seems like a, that's just a dangerous, it's always dangerous when it happens and it feels like that's our moment right now. Right, right now. Right now. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, four years ago, two years ago, there were still people who had spent, I think a lot of people who had spent seven years completely convinced that Obama wanted to institute Sharia law in America, right? They were completely convinced that the president of the United States was a secret Muslim and he wanted to implement Sharia law Mm -hmm. and every, all of his policies were devoted to that. And when we would hear that, we would roll our eyes and go, my God, people are so dumb. But like, Tens, hundreds of thousands of people believed that, like emphatically, and were acting accordingly, you know, that they were making decisions based on what they understood to be the absolute truth of the matter. Right. Now I hear from people of my own political persuasion that Donald Trump wants to, you know, put people in camps. 
and that we're headed in a direction where there are going to be camps. And we all know what that means, camps. But that that this is, you know, that this is Trump and Bannon's plan. And, you know, they can point to things that he said. They can point to, you know, things that his supporters have said. And they put it all together. Donald Trump wants to put people in camps. And so our obligation as his, as the opposition is to, is to proceed from the premise that what we're really trying to do is fight a president who is explicitly building camps for, uh, you know, for Muslims, for uh, people he disagrees with politically. Like this is the, this is the progression. And, you know, like, Obviously, Obama never stood up there and said, I want to institute Sharia law. And Trump has said some much more outrageous things. But but the hyperventilating, the, the hysteria really strikes me as very similar. Donald Trump is no more capable of creating camps than Obama was of instituting Sharia law. And I think that I think that Donald Trump has no interest in camps. It's not a thing. It's actually not a thing. When you think about it for even a second, it's not a thing. It's a rhetorical device to inflame people and to make them feel crazy and to make them feel like disaster is imminent. It's, it's a non-thing. But there will be people on the left who spend the next however long he's president um, convinced, right? Or, or acting, panicking as though what we're what, like on our immediate plate is the prospect of internment camps. And, you know, we, uh, even a month ago, we were saying that it seemed like Trump would probably not be president for more than two months or something. I mean, there was a, that was a very, like, yep. that was a very appealing way for people to think. I mean, you know, he's not going to make it. Look, he doesn't even want this job. But he seems to be settling in. He's, you know, he's getting his, he's got his comfy chair in there and he's, He's trying, he's starting to try and figure it out. So I don't know. I don't, the idea that there, there very well may be somebody listening to this program who is so appalled by the fact that I am throwing some shade on the idea that Trump is going to put people in camps, um, that they, you know, that they are are putting a little black mark next to my name as a, as somehow an apologist for him, but there is still there is still a place for reason and looking at the actual facts as you understand them and making your own choices, irrespective of like who's going to yell at you for them. Right. It's hard work right now, Dan. It is. I also think that you, well, I mean, you bring up this really interesting point to me and that is that it's, if, if you're, if you're, I almost feel like you saying Trump is not going to put people in camps is almost interpreted by a lot of people as you saying something positive and about Trump and that now, now you're a Trump supporter essentially. Yeah. Some kid, some kid, which is, you know, the, the worst thing in the world that anyone could ever be. 
some some kid on on uh, on Twitter. This was right right before I decided that Twitter had become a place I didn't want to be anymore. Yeah, but some kid and and you know, and I say kid, I mean he's twenty five. Said, you know, to say something like that is to be sympathetic to Trump, and Trump is a Nazi, and to be sympathetic to a Nazi is to be a Nazi sympathizer, mm-hmm. and it was just like. Leap, 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 leap. And, and now here we are on, <clears throat> on a lily pad where I'm a Nazi sympathizer. And there was no sense, you know, it costs, this is the thing about the internet, right? It costs nothing to say that. Like it doesn't cost you even, like to say that to somebody standing in front of them, to stand on the sidewalk and, and be talking to someone kind of toe to toe and to say like, you are a Nazi sympathizer because you have sympathized with someone that I am calling a Nazi that costs something. It costs a look, you know, a look going across a person's face of like, are you serious right now? It costs you the, the, uh, you know, it costs a little bit of, of blood just to stand there and like have the balls to say that to somebody's face. Um, with people standing around and someone else going like, what? I mean, you know, it, it, that's why we, that's why it's a lot easier to say that stuff online than it is. You know, that's one of the, that's a, that's a trope now, but truly it costs nothing to say. And so that person doesn't feel any obligation to be reasonable, right? Because being reasonable doesn't have that. It doesn't satisfy that feeling of like, um, hair standing up on the back of your neck of being certain and of denouncing, you know, the, it's so yeah. in, in, in human history, there's such a, such a, um, a dark vein that runs throughout of instances where, where a group of people will decide that someone in, is a witch and the power of that, that, denunciation you know that you've seen pictures of people where they get into that that denunciation mode where all of a sudden the spittle forms in the sides of their mouth and they're you know they lose control of themselves those those pictures from the 60s of the little black girl walking into the school and the you know and the white lady is lunging forward pointing her finger and like spit coming out of her mouth just her face like engulfed in rage and it's a, you know it's why that picture is like if, if it didn't win a Pulitzer Prize it should have but like it's a little girl you know it's a little girl trying really hard to just stay calm and walk in a straight line and this woman's like absolutely losing her mind which or whatever the fuck she's saying I'm sure she's saying something worse and that's like you know, when I feel that feeling come upon me, I know immediately that I'm headed in the wrong direction. Nothing good ever comes of feeling empowered by a mob to, um, you know, to demand. I mean, that's a lynch mentality, right? That's a burn the witch at the stake mentality. And you see it a lot now. Um and I think a big part of it is the tendency of 
there's tendency for people, and, and I think this is almost universal, when you feel assaulted, particularly for a long time, when you feel at a disadvantage, when you feel insecure, you don't perceive your own violence as assaultive, right? You perceive your own violence as defensive because you're the one under siege. You're the one that's always been um, at a disadvantage. And so all of your uh, response to it, well, first of all, everything you do in public, you feel personally is just a response. You don't, it's easy to sort of absolve yourself of the responsibility for the things that you say for the aggressive action you take towards other people because your internal feeling is that you're just replying. You're just defending yourself. You are, you know, you are being, you are being victimized. And so you are, you're responding just in order to protect yourself and to save yourself. But that internal monologue people use to justify some incredibly aggressive, attacking, violent, you know, like assaultive action. And internally, it doesn't seem like that to them. It seems like they're just protecting themselves. But they're actually out there in people's faces, creating hurt, doing actual harm. And. That's a, you know, that's a mental, um, I, you know, I think that there's, there's probably psychologically and, and maybe even sociologically, that's a prime, that's a prime mover of strife and of, of war, even the, the, the premise that every, that everyone involved or, or situations where both parties in a conflict feel that they are the victim, that they're being victimized by the other. Like that's a, that's a, in some ways like a universal uh, match strike of, hmm. of strife. Right. It's very, very rare that you'll get into a situation where one of the parties will acknowledge like, no, I'm the, I'm definitely the instigator here. I'm definitely the one that's, I mean, I'm in. A, I'm the person in the power position, and I am definitely going after this other person just for my own sport and amusement. Or I'm trying to consolidate my position here and fuck the little guy. So yeah, yeah. out of my way. You know, that's never what happens. Both parties justify their behavior with the language of um, "This is what I, you know, I am forced to do this. This is what I need to do in order to survive." Um. And I think from the standpoint of, you know, the coalition of people that I'm calling the left, when we hear that language spoken by capitalists and, um, you know, uh, people in, you know, property owners and so forth, we tend to think of it as cynical language, or I mean, we're certain that it's cynical. How dare a landlord, right? Um, you know, cynically appropriate the language of victimhood to describe their own situation where they're trying to raise the rents. You know how how 
awful that they would like, I'm the victim here. My, I'm the person whose rents are being raised. But the, but the point is that the landlord from within the landlord's own heart truly does feel like the victim. The landlord needs to raise the rent because, you know, the taxes went up, the bills need to get paid They're They are, uh, they're struggling in their own, you know, within, within the, their own definition of what success and need is. They feel like they're struggling and on the other side, they see what they perceive to be a monolithic group of renters and renter advocates and city bureaucrats and legislators, rules and enforcement people, the federal government. And that whole group feels like a monolith that is chipping away at their ability to earn a living and making it incredibly difficult for them to do their work. And so all, you know, so their resistance, their internal feeling is of being, um, you know, uh, assaulted from all sides, assailed from all sides. And part of the, part of developing sympathy for others is to realize, realize everybody's having a bad day all the time, right? Yeah, everybody's, time. everybody's struggling all the time. But, but more than that even is to realize that, or is to take that, Take stock of yourself and say all of the ways in which I feel like the victim right now, both personally and politically, like my class is the victim class. You know what I mean? I represent a victim class or I am a member of a victim class and I stand in solidarity with other people that I think are members of victim classes. It really behooves us to sit with that and say like, First of all, does it serve us to characterize ourselves as victims? What does that do other than what, what, what does that serve other than to justify what would otherwise be some somewhat questionable behavior? You know, to call yourself a victim, to think of yourself as a, as a member of a class that is under siege usually is a precursor to justifying doing something, behaving a certain way that you wouldn't otherwise do. You know, you wouldn't other, you wouldn't admire it if you saw somebody else do it, but you have to do it because you are, um, because you, you know, because you're at, at, um, you're at your wits end, right? You, there's only a little bit, of, a little bit of air left in the room. And also like, to what degree are you really, um, to what degree are, are really any of us exclusively victims um, in every dynamic, in every exchange with every other person, with every political entity, it's always flexible. You're, you know, there's not a single person in the world that is exclusively a victim. And I don't, I don't mean victim in the, in the like Dr. Phil sense, but like just, you know, the one on the receiving end of the short stack, right? You know, that's just not true. Every day we wake up and we have power in certain situations, even in situations where it seems like there's a historic precedence for there to be an imbalance of power in this particular exchange. That imbalance of power is, is, 
inverted or is momentarily redressed. And that's, it's very difficult to construct an ideology around that. You know what I mean? Like people cannot rally around the flag of, Hey, take every, you know, in every situation, question yourself first. It's a very difficult national motto. And so people don't like it. They would much rather rally around somebody who says you are blameless and have always been held down and now we're going to stand up and right the wrongs like that. That is fun to hear. And that is, um, and it feels empowering, although it isn't what's truly empowering is to, is to every, you know, like have your first thought be, am I where, where do I really stand here? Am I really right? Am I, you know, do I have a, is there such a thing even as the class of people that I am, that I place myself squarely within? Like when we talk about Trump and his supporters, like what exactly is the white working class that we keep referring to? Who is this white working class? But you're not supposed to ask these questions. <laughs> yeah, Especially not that one. I mean, you're really not, you're not supposed to ask these kinds of questions. Because then if, if you're question if you're even questioning them, then clearly you don't understand. Clearly you haven't got it. Mm-hmm. You're one of them. Yeah. Because otherwise, why would you be questioning it? It felt like for a long time when I was growing up that that progress was inevitable. And the progress that interested me was not um whether or not we increased the speed of our computers exponentially every four years. The progress was not even that we got more clean water to people and reduced the infant mortality rate globally. And the progress that interested me was not that we made it into outer space and built a moon base, although that did interest me, but it wasn't the primary thing. And it wasn't that we brought electricity to the world and it wasn't that we increased the harvests or found new antibacterials. You know, what interested me and what I thought progress was going to be. And, and I thought it, I thought it was inevitable because why would you, what would, what could possibly happen to interrupt this? was the progress of the gradual secularization of the world. The, the, the gradual, like the, the idea that has been around since the Greeks and before that as people got educated, you would have a nation of philosopher Kings and Queens that people became less and less superstitious less and less conservative over time. And it was, you know, it was an idea, a fantasy, I guess, that intellectualism was attractive uh, of its own and that it was inevitable. As we had more leisure time, of course, we would have more, we would pursue more noble activities. You know, this was the whole this has been 
one version of progress for many hundreds of years that, that people of a certain kind, uh, admittedly elites, dreamed of. Um, and I subscribed to it as a kid. It was my religion, if there was one was a gradual decline in um, what I thought were the things that really inhibited human life, Um, like authoritarianism and um, orthodoxy in favor of pluralism and open-mindedness and like, uh, you know, the kind of giddy, the giddy leisure that comes from living in a world of ideas and to see it go so unceremoniously over, over the course of my adult life, you know, first to see it go as like a creeping anti-intellectualism that came into the country and then see the intellectuals respond to it with an increasing orthodoxy so that the exact people that you would hope would say, no, no, no. The answer to this is, you know, is more, more access, more popular, more widespread um, understanding and more, more commiseration and more, um, you know, not just like music festivals in the park on the 4th of July, but like more questioning, more doubt. But, but the intellectuals circled the wagons and, and decided that, that they were under siege and what they needed to do was, build their own walls, make the, make the language of their work unintelligible to normal people, uh, make their criticism of popular culture unending and self-replicating and, you know, and have, and go, uh, to have the Academy turn into an Ouroboros of like, or a, or worse, like a human centipede. And just little by little at every stage on every side, I've, I've spent my adult life watching the fun go out of secular life and, you know, people go to church less, but they didn't, but they, that didn't stop them from being bigots. If anything, they, they, their bigotry increased. It wasn't the church. It turns out it wasn't. It wasn't conservative religion that was making people assholes. They stopped going to church and they became bigger assholes. And it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't the world of ideas that made intellectuals insufferable. Intellectuals have largely abandoned a world of ideas and they're just more insufferable. I don't know. When I was in, when I was first in college, the idea that we had of a teacher. And I don't mean at the Gonzaga because at Gonzaga, I went to Gonzaga for two years and what we studied there was drinking gin and, <laughs> you know, like, uh, yeah, we read, um, Hannah Arendt, right. But it wasn't with, 
it was not a big Gonzaga was not a Nietzsche place, right? It was a um, like Thomas Aquinas place. But at the University of Washington, the idea that we had in 1990 was that if you were a good teacher, your students left the class um, with less certainty about what is true than they came into the class with. The whole point of going to college was to get more confused, not less. Right. And that's the, you know, that's the goal. And with more confusion comes less stridency, right? If you're confused, the solution is not to be strident because you don't know what's, you don't know. Stridency is a product of thinking that you know something. And if the universities were doing their job, they would be producing people who came out with the humility to say, like, I've read a lot of books on this topic. I still don't know exactly what the answer is, but here are some thoughts. But somewhere along the line, the university stopped feeling like that was their job. And they responded to the pressure of people that were like, well, we need to. Um, my parents are really concerned that I'm not going to, going to, uh, be able to pay my student loans off. So somehow we need to professionalize the literature department in such a way that when I come out with a degree in comparative literature, that I know some things, you know, that I'd be able to say that I know the truth. And, you know, I don't know what, I don't know where. I don't know what the place is for people anymore who do not subscribe. They're, they are still the people that can help us the most. The people who are not um, card-carrying members of anything. Right. And as everyone around me is carrying a card of membership in one or two or five different things, you know, the lack of a membership card in something starts to seem very suspicious to them. And I think in our culture right now, if you don't, if you're not prepared to pull your membership card out and wave it in the air, you're scarier than the person that's waving their, the card of your opposition. Right. Yeah, Exa that, Exactly. I, I, when I was running for office, I got, I went to a, one of 10,000 of those events where you're just like, you show up in front of some small business organization, you stand up there and the people you're running against are standing next to you holding their note cards and you all get three minutes to go up and say, hello, you know, thank you so much to the Filipino Seattle business association. I I'm running for office because I want there to be more opportunities for members of the Filipino Filipina business association. And when in office, I will consult with you whenever legislation comes up that may benefit you. And I will act on your behalf. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then the next person gets up and says it again, says it a different way. Mm -hmm. And I get up and I gave my usual speech which was hello my name is john roderick many years ago i was on a boat in central africa and i thought to myself 
Is there a reason why the birds sing in the morning? You know, and all the people I'm running against are just like, oh, my God, this guy just does not (laughs) understand it. And the members of the business association are like, they're not listening to anybody. You know what I mean? Like, they just want to see you show up and they want to, they want you to tell them that they are, that you're on their team or whatever. That's true of everything. Anyway, after the thing, I'm sitting out in my truck and a current city, sitting Seattle city council person walks over to the truck and leans his head in and says, you know, the thing about you, the reason why you're scary to people is that nobody knows what you're going to do. And that's the last thing anybody wants. Doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter what their, their particular thing thing is. It doesn't matter what their um, position in the city is. Nobody wants to elect somebody that they don't, they're not sure where they're going to vote on a thing. We'd much rather have somebody that we know is against us than somebody that we can't know for sure. Right. Because it gives them a frame of reference. Yeah. Right. If they know that they're five to four on this, then they need to turn one of the fives into their way of thinking. But if there's four to four and one person that they're just not sure, they don't know how to, they don't know whether to focus on the person they're not sure of or find somebody else. Like they don't know whether, because it's not about like, because it's about, it's, it's that it's, you know, it's, it's sports ball. And I thought that was crazy when I heard it. I really did. I was like, seriously, don't, wouldn't you rather have a a city council with nine people that you don't know what they're going to do? Because every time an issue comes up, shouldn't all nine of them consider the issue? And if it's a valid issue, it should have nine different, nine different people really considering and weighing their options so that you won't know what they're going to do until they vote instead of an issue comes up and you know immediately that five people support it before they, before anybody's read a word of it just because of the title of it. That seems kind of like a, I mean, that seems awful to me, but it turns out. No, in fact, that's actually how it works. That's what people want. They do not, do not, do not, do not want you to sit and think about it because Smarter minds than you have thought about it already. They just want you to cast your ballot. I'm sorry, Dan. That was a long, long soliloquy. I mean, it's an answer. A long answer to the woman wrote in and she got her answer. She didn't really even ask a question. And I answered her for 40 minutes. Yeah. Well, before we do our next piece of listener mail, we would like to thank our sponsor. It's Squarespace. Make your next move with a beautiful website. Use Squarespace to do it. They do a great job. They even have unique domain names there, too. I'm sure you've seen the cool commercials with John Malkovich where he's trying to get his domain name. You can go and register a domain name. You've always been uh, able to get a domain when you were signing up for Squarespace and, and going through that, uh, the sign-up process, you could get one. If you're signing up for a year, you got it for free. Well, now 
you can go and just get your domain name there. You don't even have to uh, create, um, although you should make your website there. You can just go and register a domain name. Then it's there. It's set up. Grab it. Don't lose it. I love that. But they have these amazing award-winning designer templates that are there. You can make a website. You can make an online store if you've got something to sell. And these things look really, really great. I mean, you could go and hire a designer and spend $5,000. And you might get something that looks cool or you might get nothing. Or you can just go and sign up for Squarespace and you'll have exactly what you see there. And then you can get in and customize it. And what's cool, we talk about on a lot of these shows, we talk about how cool Squarespace is. And I can, oh, you can really tweak the design. If in like three months or six months, you're bored of the design, you can go in and pick another template. Every single piece of content that you've added, whether it's the images, the gallery, the store, the blog posts, whatever it is that you've got there, will instantaneously be converted and transformed and you'll have this new look and feel to your entire website. And you can tweak it before you take it live and boom, you're done. 24-7 customer support. They got your domains. Super easy to set up. I mean, any kind of website you want to make, you can do it. They're great. What more can I say? Go to squarespace.com. If you use the code ROADWORK, ROADWORK, one word, you'll get 10% off your first purchase. And if you're sitting there saying, well, I've already got a Squarespace. I, don't, I can't use your code. Tell your friend about it. Tell your parents about it. Tell the person that you overhear in the coffee shop talking about, oh, I really wish it wasn't so hard to make a website. Lean over and be like, yeah, dude, road work code, 10% off, and then just go back to your coffee. We appreciate that. It supports the show. Go check it out at squarespace.com. Uh, is there another question? You got a second question? Yes, I do. <laughs> Were you re- <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, I was just going to say... Were you just sitting and reading questions for that last 40 minutes? No, I was, I, I would, <clears throat> I, it was a rare moment. I wasn't really doing anything except just ab, rapt attention. I see. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. What do you got? All right. I'm, I'm picking a good one now. All right. Hang on. I want, I want a good one. I want to see because there's some, there's some angry ones in here. Oh yeah. Well, I don't want any of that. You don't want any of that? No, go keep your anger. Yell at somebody else. All right. You don't want to hear the one where he was angry about you and Bernie? Nope. Nope. Right. Not interested. All right. I if calmed him down. If you're angry about Bernie, there are lots of places for you to be that. No, he was angry about you and Bernie. If you're angry about me and Bernie, I'm sure you can find a place to do that <laughs> where other people will uh, validate your feelings. Yeah. I'm not going to validate your feelings. Okay. Let me see another one here. Hang on. This one's just a nice, a nice something to make you feel good. See, I don't, I don't, I, you don't want I, that either, do you? Well, I mean, you know, I don't suffer from not feeling good. All right. That can be solved with that, right? The, the degree to which I don't feel good. Um, like, I don't, no, here's here's one. I I think you're gonna have uh, trouble answering this one. Oh, okay, that's the kind I like. And uh, and it starts off uh, in an in an interesting way. Uh, Howdy, Ben. I'm I'm uh, thinking mm-hmm. I'm Ben. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. What is he? Does does? <laughs> I think the show starts every week with Hey, John. Hey, Dan. Benjamin. Right, but could there could be a Ben? There could be. Maybe you've got an intern named Ben. Hey, Ben. Danjamin. Hey, 
Howdy, howdy, but we gets the howdy part right. Okay, howdy, uh, Ben Danjeman. Ah. Moving on. This is a pretty random fun thought. Yeah. But I would love to see what John thinks about Battlefield 1, a video game based on World War One that came out recently. Is it accurate by his standards? Ha! I'm reading this verbatim. Ha. Ha! Keep was up. That a, was that a trick or? Oh, okay. He was just like. He typed. Is it accurate by his standards? Question mark, exclamation point. Ha! Huh. Exclamation right. point. Right. Keep up the amazing and raw show. Jeffrey from Pismo Beach. Jeffrey, thank you for noticing that our show is raw. Yes. Um, I have not played the game. Have you seen it or heard anything about it? No. no. I, it, I, I, I imagine that a video game about World War I, in order for it to be accurate, it would also have to be super boring. Unless the game is like a strategery style game where mm-hmm. you are, you're sitting at, at, in Clemenceau's office and you guys are making big plans. But like the actual work of going over the top and fighting all day and losing all your friends and then, it, then you go back to the same trench where you started and try and fall asleep in the, in the rain... That doesn't seem like a very fun game. Do you know anything about the game, Dan? No, that's not one that I'm familiar with. It's also not the kind of game that my nine-year-old son is into. If you wanted to talk about Overwatch uh, or or uh, TF2 or Minecraft, that would have a, maybe an answer. But no, I don't. I have never uh, at all played any kind of war game i've definitely played like the first person shooter games where you run around shooting at everything that moves but i've never i've never played one that was like a uh like a war simulation game or the kind of game where it's supposed to be realistic and like war i don't like war very much i don't like war stories i don't like war movies rather I, i find them very hard to watch really yeah yeah. Well, what happens when you watch a war movie to you? To me, you, I you just, just feel anxious. I get it's like it's like un, it's like because um, you know that it's real. And as these movies have gotten better and better and better and the effects have gotten better and better. Um, fortunately, we have fewer and fewer good actors these days. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the effects have gotten very realistic that I find that they're just like there was um, I think there is a a television show called band of brothers yes there is that a lot of people have recommended to me as something i i should watch and i said isn't that about war and they're like yes and it's it's intense and it's realistic and i'm like i just don't i just can't go through i can't go through it. it's too much it's too much yeah and i mean i I, it's not that i don't want to or i'm trying to hide uh, from the brutal reality of war i'm not i've I used to watch that kind of thing, but I feel like as I've gotten older and now I have like kids and I think that, you know, I don't know. I just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to watch. Plus the only time I get to watch stuff that I want to watch is at like 10 o'clock at night. And I don't really want to sit down and watch like a, like a emotionally invested anxiety inducing war show, you know, 30 minutes before I got to go try to go to sleep. What's your feeling about serial killers, Dan? Oh, I have no problem watching that. I mean, are you are you interested in serial killers? I mean, the short answer would be 
I'm I'm not not interested in them, but I'm not interested in them in like it's a hobby and I'm really into it and I'm reading books about them or listening to podcasts about it or something like that. I mean, but like if if there's a good serial killer movie or show or documentary, yeah, I'll put that on. Uh-huh. So yeah, I'm not worried about that. So some some aspect of it that uh, about war movies that you don't like is the kind of like um like the frenetic action the that, random yeah, yeah. danger and, then, and yeah random danger for sure but then you know you've got these characters you want them to you want them to succeed and you hope that they will and then you've got to see their you know body parts getting blown off it's just not my I've never liked it I've never been into like the the whole war thing now, Counter about, Strike you ever heard of that game Counter Strike I've heard of it I could never get into that I was more the the Team Fortress classic kind but rocket now, rocket jumps if it's uh if it's a space movie oh that's fine so space war is okay yeah like yeah space war is great love love a good space war so it's just like you don't want to see world war ii movies where it might have been your grandfather right or like vietnam movies vietnam is a little bit better but it's still but we i feel maybe it's just specific to like world war ii that i don't like because well, Vietnam, I, I've seen a lot of Vietnam movies, come to think of it, mm-hmm. and they're, that's better. Mm-hmm. World War I, they used the gas, right? The mustard yeah. gas? Yeah. Not all the time, but yeah. They had it on them. It was, it, they tried it out. They and decided World, it was bad. World War II, they didn't use it. Uh, generally, by World War II, they, uh, the, the, uh, the, Conflicting powers yeah. felt like uh, using poison gas was, you know, although there were no rules about uh, killing millions of people with poison gas. Right. You just didn't do it on the battlefield. Right, right, right. Exempted. That yeah, and then that I can, because, I, so I feel like maybe it's just the World War II kind of gruesomeness that I, I can't abide. Well, it's interesting because. Uh, World War One movies typically are. Uh, we don't really make action movies about World War One. World right. War One movies are always thoughtful set pieces, all quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, they're they're sort of like they're Victorian costume dramas, or right. they are like psychological. Uh, r- are ruminations. there good World War One movies? Have I even seen one? Yes, but but you have to like that kind. I mean, everyone in a World War One movie is going to be speaking with a British accent, right? That's the yeah. that's the feeling. The mm-hmm. feeling there is like Evelyn Waugh goes to war and writes a poem <laughs> every day about. Uh, it's it's not like over the top, boys. That's that's sort of not the um, the vibe because. At the end of the war, like every single one of those over the tops ultimately produced nothing. You know, the war did not end because one side defeated the other side. Like on the last day of World War One, you could make an eloquent case that it was a draw. Um, so it, that's not very good movie stuff. 
Like, oh, every country lost a million soldiers, but sort of a draw. I mean, it'd be a very interesting movie to talk about the treaties that were signed afterwards, but uh, only interesting to a certain type of person. Um, and World War, so Vietnam movies, we're used to feature, we're used to Vietnam movies featuring a small cast, an ensemble cast. Right. The platoon, uh, of, uh, the as, pl- as you would say. Right. Or the apocalypse now. Right. Where it's like a multiracial class, a multiracial group of like ver- various types, right? There's the, there's the, the saucy, uh, like guy who's got a girl back home. There's the cool cat with the sunglasses on and it ain't no thing. There's the hard bitten sergeant, uh, with a heart of gold. <laughs> there's the, there's the like naive narrator who's not quite sure one way or the other, but he's here because he got a scholarship. Um, you know, there it's, there are a lot of cliches in Vietnam movies, but you also get a feeling as the movie progresses that, um, yeah, some of these people are going to die, but they are, um, uh, <sighs> You, it's much harder to shed a tear for somebody in a Vietnam movie. And I don't know. And that, and that's, and that's very interesting, right? On the one hand, in most Vietnam movies, you have no sense of the humanity of the Vietnamese at all. They're just shadowy figures in, um, in black pajamas and rice hats who, come in waves with AK 47s and they shoot and shoot and shoot and you shoot and shoot and shoot. And then they leave without a trace. You didn't see them coming. And then after they're gone, they leave no, they leave no one behind. Right. Right, right. So the only Vietnamese you ever see in a Vietnam movie are the one or two people that get captured and then tortured and really mistreated in front of the camera. And it, and they and tortured and really mistreated, and they are defiant. Mm-hmm. And then every once in a while, you know, there's a there's a Vietnamese girl that you are introduced to, um, or somebody you know in the town that the that the protagonist gets to be friends with, that allows us to see the horrors of war. But a World War Two movie, World War Two was the last time that the United States fielded an army that was truly a cross section of the country. Um, you know, college educated people, middle-class, normal people, regular people, uh, teachers and, and sports figures and local guys. And so the world war two cliche is there's a guy from Brooklyn and there's a guy from the South and there's a surfer from California or whatever. I mean, I guess it was before surfers. I was, I was getting into Vietnam movies there, but you know, the, the violence that's doled out in world war two movies feels more personal because it feels like it's happening to really to your neighbors, mm-hmm. not just to the teenagers that went to your 
kid's school, but like your, your best friend's father, your, the guy that runs the drugstore, you know? Um, and it was a segregated army. So World War II movies do not have any of the racial tension that's present in Vietnam movies. Like every Vietnam movie has racial tension within the American troops. Right. And in World War II movies, the racial tension is always between the Catholic guy and the Jewish guy who are both from Brooklyn. So it feels um, the American side feels cleaner and less internally divided. And the Americans are always fighting against either the Germans who are like a, who are presented as a mechanized Teutonic wave of unfeeling like meth hopped up super soldiers. Or we're fighting the Japanese who are portrayed just like the Vietnamese, which is like a undifferentiated mass wave of what appear to be like unthinking, like a, like they're presented as a horde rather than as, um, you know, like an unfeeling horde in a way. So the, but the violence definitely is, is contextualized, right? If you see a guy's head blown off in Vietnam, in a Vietnam movie, half the time you're like, well, he would have died from drugs anyway, <laughs> you know, or whatever, just another, you know, he would have died in a motorcycle wreck. But in, in World War II, it very much feels like these are our boys. They're fighting for, they're fighting for America. We're weird. And I feel like those, that's the way we thought of those wars within, you know, on the home front too. There's not a lot, there wasn't a lot of sympathy for kids coming back from Vietnam. There wasn't a lot of sympathy and there was right. very little pride right. in them. And it's interesting, our relationship to our troops now, because I think we forget people my age, at least, who had a very, very intense relationship with baby boomers when baby boomers were younger, right? When I was a teenager, baby boomers were in their Mm thirties. When I was a young teen, they were in their thirties and then they, you know, they went into their forties as I was in my late teens and baby boomers were so into themselves and, you know, God, they just thought they were so incredible. They were the ones that had ended the war in Vietnam. They were the peaceniks. They were the, um, they were the ones that gave us Jimi Hendrix and, the doors. And then during the Reagan years, it became clear that the people that were supporting Reagan were the baby boomers. He couldn't have gotten elected without the baby boomers. And that was the era when the baby boomers were like, well, we were idealistic in our teens and twenties, but now that we're in our thirties, now it's time to get serious. And we realize that, Greed is good. And, you know, they were the, they were the boom, boom eighties people. That wasn't generation X. We were all in high school. Then it was the same people that were at Woodstock were on wall street in the eighties. 
And now the your typical sort of Trump supporting red state conservative, those are baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Same people. They're in their 60s now. Right. And in a way, this like hyper support our troops, like army worship that happens feels like the final chapter in the Vietnam story. You know, the, the sort of disgraceful way that we treated returning troops when they came back from Vietnam. But more than that, even the, the, the whole argument that the reason we lost the war, quote unquote, lost the war in Vietnam, or rather I should say the reason we lost the quote unquote war in Vietnam is that the home front didn't support it, right? That was the argument that was made throughout the seventies and eighties. It wasn't that we lost any kind of war because we're the United States of America. It was that like the army didn't lose. It was the people at home with their bad attitudes that caused us to, to have to leave Vietnam in a, in a, in a sort of uh, disadvantageous way. We didn't even say we lost the war in Vietnam until about 1990. That was, if you had said that in 1985, you would have been shouted down by almost anybody. And so here we are in 2017 and this, this generation, this, um, the worst generation, as I like to call it, they're getting their final you know, they're bringing it all the way back around and now you can't criticize the army or the troops at all. You can make no, you have no option when confronted with a soldier, but to take a knee and thank them profusely for their service. Even if they are somebody who works in the motor pool, still they're, they're making the ultimate sacrifice and to question us intervention in things to question them foreign policy, military foreign policy is to tread dangerously close to not supporting our troops, not supporting the armed forces, which is treasonous behavior. And it's the, you know, it's the boomers, the same ones who, who spit on soldiers returning from war. I mean, obviously the soldiers returning from war were also boomers. This is a, this is a sweeping generalization I'm making. But like generationally, they they had their cake and ate it too. From from being like vociferously anti-war to being like war-starved, blood-drenched. I give you the baby boomers. <laughs> 